for our second message today. We have a sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, Faithful Servants. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today on a beautiful Sabbath day. And as was mentioned, just around the corner, the fall feast days. So, as it always does, it comes around really fast. Uh, but uh, kind of start off today, just talk to you a little bit about this message uh, I didn't know that so many of the songs, and I, maybe it was planned, uh, but many of the songs today had the lyrics of faithfulness in it. And, and, and when we read the Bible, we see that God is a very faithful God. In fact, all the way from the very beginning, in the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, we see that faithfulness. But we ultimately, and which is the centerpiece, I think, of demonstrating the faithfulness of God, it's when he sent his son here for me and you. And we saw that perfect circle of perfection, of faithfulness perfection between Jesus the Son and God the Father. As Jesus was faithful in the mission that his father sent him on. And the father was faithful back to the only son that he had and that he gave up who would be sacrificed for me and you. And so on this, we're going to get into a parable today. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in a few minutes. But the title of this message today is Faithful Servants. Now that term, if we look at an English dictionary, I just went to dictionary.com because it's nice and easy and quick and we live in the world of convenience now. But there's four different definitions or kind of examples of what faithful means or faithfulness means. Number one, strict or thorough in the performance of duty, like a faithful worker. Secondly, true to one's word, promises, vows. We can kind of apply that to marriage, right? We make a commitment. I mean, it can be applied to work as well. If you're an employee, you're making a commitment to your employer. If you're entering into a relationship with a spouse and getting married, you're entering into a commitment to be faithful, Third, steady in allegiance or affection, loyal and constant. We can think about like faithful friends as kind of an example that's in this, uh, this part of the definition here. And then fourthly, reliable, trusted, or believed. Faithful. This week, I think that all of us were reminded of how faithful some individuals were and their jobs as firemen, as first responders, as policemen, as just good people, just good citizens, just good Samaritans wanting to help, of course, in the anniversary of the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, both in the World Trade Center as well as the Pentagon. And so when I was looking at what we're going to be talking today, that idea of faithfulness, I started just thinking about, you know, human growth, human development. I mean, from the very beginning of our scriptures, of humankind, we have been entrusted with the stewardship, with the responsibility to be faithful in. We can look at Adam and Eve. Unfortunately, they didn't fulfill their uh, responsibility, their obligation, but God's faithfulness himself was able to kind of get them out of that predicament, and then, of course, me and you. But we see that they were given the responsibility. They were entrusted as stewards over the Garden of Eden. And we understand what that story and how it goes. But all through the Bible, we see that that's what God does. He gives people and entrusts them with the responsibility. A big part of life is being entrusted with a duty or a responsibility. In fact, I would say this is one of the hallmarks of human development and growth. As a little child, as parents, what do you want for your kids? Of course you want them to learn, you want them to, 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 to become good people, but ultimately what you're wanting them to do is to be able to develop into a responsible individual, a responsible adult that has the necessary skills to be a productive citizen, to lead a happy life. Whether this be chores that you give a child at an early age, or 
maybe when you move into adulthood, you get a job. And so the natural development is that you're given responsibility. You do what you're supposed to do with that responsibility. You are fruitful with that responsibility. And then you're given more. And Jesus kind of touches upon this, and we're going to look at this today, because we're going to look at Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 14 through 30, which is the parable known as the parable of the talent. So let's just go there real quick. I'm not going to read all of it all at once. I think I'm going to read section by section and talk about kind of what Jesus is getting at here. So what I want to do is I want to read through this parable and talk about some of the historical aspects and just kind of analyze what's going on. And then I want us to kind of try to look at the interpretation. Now we have to understand Matthew the 25th chapter is the later part of Matthew. Only 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. And we know that starting in chapter 24, maybe just a little bit before that, Jesus starts to give his eschatological or end times or his warnings. Look, I'm not going to be with you much longer. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the days ahead. Let me tell you what's going to happen with me. And let me, let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of the age. So we see in Matthew's gospel, we've moved in this part of Matthew where Jesus is talking about both the coming days, what's going to happen to the Son of Man, and then, of course, the end days. And we know that Matthew 24 is littered with end-time prophetic events that will take place that still have not taken place to this very day. So we have to read this parable in light of that, understanding that Jesus is talking in some ways eschatologically. That means eschaton. It's a Greek word that means like end times, like the end, the finality. And so in theological circles, when you hear someone say eschatology, not wanting to get into theological terms or anything, it's just kind of a habit of mine, that means end times, the end days, or prophecy, things to happen in the future before the other words we use, like Armageddon or the return of Christ and things like that. So Matthew, the 25th chapter, picking up in verse 14, he's already given a parable. He's He's actually given many parables throughout the book of Matthew. But in verse 14, he begins what's commonly known as the parable of the talents. And Jesus says in verse 14, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. Now verse 19 says, After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And so we're just going to talk a little bit about if you were in Jesus' audience one of his disciples, the, tw uh, the first century, uh, you would understand some of these things because it would be kind of common to your culture. Number one, many people who were wealthy that had assets, that had lots of money, whether it be land or whether it be precious metals or, or money or currency or something like that, they would oftentimes entrust their assets to trained accountants. I mean, we kind of do that today, right? If Maybe we have some money, maybe we have a financial advisor, maybe we have an accountant that kind of help us make money from that, whatever it be, okay, to invest or something like that. Many times these people would have servants. Some of these accounts would be servants or they would be trusted individuals that this master, obviously in this case, they were his servants and he trusted them, everyone to their ability, with his assets and he expected them to help make a profit or multiply a little bit of what they gave him. So here in the context, we see that they are servants. Another thing we have to understand is, is that whenever you were to go on a long journey, it wasn't like it is today, okay? Uh, funny thing is, I grabbed in my bag, this is a plane ticket right here. I actually put some notes on it to read, okay? It says that on July the 11th, 2019, that I took off from Tulsa and went to Dallas. I took off at like 6.05 in the morning and was supposed to land in Dallas at like 6.50 a.m. Now, the reason I'm bringing that out and it's just kind of spur of the moment deal is, is that this is very precise. 
We kind of know in our modern age, if we're going to go somewhere, hey, I'll be back on the 11th at 2 o'clock. We didn't have that back then. And so when this master left the, these servants, these servants had no idea. It was very unpredictable. We had, you know, we had different kinds of transportation. You never knew when your master was going to be back. So these servants, they were entrusted with these assets, with these talents. We're going to talk about what that is in just a minute. And they had no idea whenever this person would return. Now that is key because it's related to me and you and our journey as Christians. And we're going to get to that in just a little while. So these individuals, not only were they entrusted with their master's stuff, with their master's talents, and we'll find out what a talent is in a minute, but in historical circles, looking at this from a historical perspective, these individuals, when they returned a profit for their masters, oftentimes would get to share in some of those profits. So there's a little bit in it for these people that the talents were invested in. So what is a talent? Now that's kind of a confusing thing. A lot of people, I think, get mixed up, and, and I myself did as well. You think automatically, oh man, this means God's given us like, oh, our different talents, like our different abilities, because that's like the modern way that we use the word talent. Well, that is not quite the same or the case when it comes to the first century. The word comes to us as meaning like skills, ability, you know, our intelligence, uh, things like that. But in this day and age, it was just a simple unit of exchange. It's like a currency almost. And so a talent, it's really not, we can't know exactly what the worth of a talent would be because it fluctuated throughout history, kind of like it does today. But we do know roughly that one talent was worth roughly 6,000 denaries. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Now, a denarii was essentially a standard Roman unit of currency. Now, we would have standard, we have standard units of currency today, like a dollar bill, uh, all the way down to a penny, uh, 25 cents or a quarter. We have standard units of money. And so a denarii, a 6,000 denarii, that's one talent, would be roughly, in this day and age, for someone who's just a general laborer or a foot soldier, about 16 and a half years worth of wages. So it's quite a bit. It wasn't just like some chump change. I mean, 16 and a half years worth, I have not worked that long, okay, in my life, as far as like, you know, not telling my age, but I haven't had a job that long consistently. So that's more than I've ever made having someone, having a consistent job. That's, that's a lot of money. So, five talents would be well over most people would make in their lifetime. So that's a lot of money. That's a good amount of money. So, the third thing we have to kind of look at, might, have be, might be the fourth or fifth thing, but the, the third thing I have down here, is that the talents were given based upon ability. Not every servant got the same amount of talents. And so that's key and that's interesting because I think that also has an application to our life, especially as we look around and we see we're all individuals, we all have different journeys, and we all have different circumstances. But God's given those circumstances to us, and they're not the same as the person next to us, but nevertheless, they still come from God himself. So the first two servants, let's look at them. Good and faithful. That's what this message is all about, right? Being a faithful servant. So the first two individuals pretty much do the same thing. First, the first servant gets five, makes five. So now he has ten. He's multiplied, he's doubled the amount of talents that he's been given by his master. Same thing with the second servant. Had two, now has four. Doubled the amount of talents that they were given. But what is interesting is that there's something missing in the King James Version that's present in the New American Standard Version, the, the uh, Net. Bible, which is the New English Translation, as well as the ESV, the English Standard Version. And that is the manner in which these two individuals, not only did they go make a profit, but it says in those versions that when they were given these talents, they went immediately to work. They didn't stop and ask questions. Okay, you're giving me this. Well, how long do I have to, to make a profit? Well, can you tell me what I'm supposed to do with this? Uh, they didn't ask any questions. And I think that's important because I think it differentiates these two servants from the last servant, the third servant. 
the ESV says they went at once. The Net Bible says they went off right away. Immediately, there was no hesitancy whatsoever, no questions. These two servants immediately took that responsibility by the hands and had a sense of urgency to go and be faithful to what they had been entrusted with. Now, the third servant was not like the first two. The third servant, as we just read, received one talent and did nothing. Well, they did do something. They buried it into the ground. Now, that's kind of strange to me and you. I don't know. Maybe some of you guys have buried money before. I know that. Seriously, I actually have heard of people burying money before because, I mean, people have lived in different times and become untrusting to, you know, uh, banks and things like that. But burying money was one of the most safest and least profitable ways of protecting one's money. People would bury money sometimes. In fact, in Luke, the 19th chapter, and just to kind of give you a little preview, I think you know, this servant's going to be condemned for doing this. But in Luke 19, there's kind of a a companion story. It's a little different from this parable, but it's very similar. That servant put it in a cloth, which was even worse. It was even, you know, worse off than actually burying the money. And so that's what we've been presented with. We have these three servants. Two of them have basically doubled what they had been given and one servant has done nothing now at first you're thinking you know it, it for me it's a 21st century thinking reader i'm reading this i'm thinking well yeah those those first two they're just good business people and that third guy he's just he's scared he doesn't know he doesn't really have the skills or the ability to to do this to, to do what he's been asked to do and so they kind of get maybe he's kind of just a little bit worried but we see that there's There's a pretty sharp and serious tone to the master when he returns. Because verse, uh, I think it's verse 19 says, After a long time, we don't know when, we don't know how long it was, after a long time the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So basically he came back and he wants to know, okay, show me what you got. What have you done? And so we read in verse 20, just kind of read verse 20 to 23. So he had received... So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. Verse 21, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, You delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. We'll go ahead and read verse 24 and 25 as well. Verse 24, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I know or knew you to be a hard man, reaping, where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. And so we see the master returns home and we see the response to the three individuals. Now the first, first and second servant, both those doubled their money. He did, and it's interesting, he looked at both of them and basically was proud and happy and commended both of them for what they had done. He didn't, you know, even though the first one, he, he got five and he made five more and the second one got two, he didn't get as many and he didn't make as many. He commended both of them. They were both urgent to take and go about working and being faithful to their master's business. They proved themselves to be faithful and their actions showed this. The third servant, though, on the other hand, instead of being faithful, made an excuse. Several excuses that we can see in here as why he did nothing and ignored his responsibility to his master. Now, one of the things that he did was, and kind of strange in the English, he says, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man. Now, what does that mean, to be a hard man? There's a couple other places in the New Testament where this Greek word hard, which is the it's scleros, 
I don't know if I'm pronouncing that quite correctly, but it basically means harsh, demanding, cruel. I knew you to be a hard man, a cruel man, a harsh man, and I was afraid. I was scared. And not only that, you reaped and gathered where you not sow or spread seed. Now what does that mean? Now he's accusing, now he's throwing it back on the master. He's saying, look, you're having us do your business. You're taking, you're exploiting us. That's why I didn't do it. You're exploiting us. And not only that, I was afraid. You're harsh. You're, you're demanding. What if I would have lost it? What would have been the consequences then? So these are the excuses that he's given. And again, the, the, the English doesn't quite do it justice when you kind of look back and look at some of the commentaries and look at some of the historical things. Because one of the things that he says is he says a Jewish phrase, here you have what is yours. Now in English we think he's just saying, hey look, I kept it safe for you. But this actually was a Jewish saying in transaction um, in the area of transactions that basically says, means, I am not responsible for this any further. There's your stuff. There's kind of like a sharpness even of the servant to the master. There's an excuse. And the funny thing is, he says he was afraid, but if you think about it, how could he be afraid? If he think, I mean, if he, th- if he, if he thinks that the, the master's going to come home and be upset with him, then why wouldn't that prompt him to be about his master's, his master's service? And so the response of the Lord to the third servant, we'll read on, starts in verse 26. He says, but his Lord answered and said to him, we saw the response of the first two servants. Now we're seeing the response of this thir- third servant. You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Now that's pretty harsh. I think that these parables are serious, and all parables are serious. Every, all words of God are serious. But you can definitely tell as Jesus starts to enter into that era or to that phase where he's getting ready to go and be sacrificed, it's almost like you kind of see there's kind of a sharp... There's, there, he's getting even more serious. Now, I, what I mean by that is, is that these parables here they're great for instruction, but I think sometimes it's easy to forget that these are not just parables for instruction. These are warnings. And that's harsh language. You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will, he be, ta- will be taken away. Verse 30, and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't think you get much more serious than that. It's a pretty serious consequence of this third individual. So he's called wicked. Okay? Now, I think it was, when you read the story, that this individual not only was making an excuse, but he was lying of why he was afraid. Okay? He was afraid, you know, what if I would have lost it? But it seems to me, and looking at this, that he wasn't quite telling maybe the truth in that was more of an excuse. Secondly, he's called lazy. The master pointed out that he didn't even attempt to do what's the safest investment move. Now, I need to kind of pause here and probably just say that it's a strange parable in that oftentimes throughout the Bible, when we talk about interest or we talk about uh, merchants, they're not always talked about in the most positive light. In fact, we know that the law kind of prohibited Jews... Of the, of the day, of course, his, all of us, the law, of charging interest to the point where it's usury, where you're, you're, you're essentially taking a, advantage of other people. We see Jesus get very upset with that. But I think that what we have to understand is that Jesus is trying to use a common cultural scenario for people to understand 
the point at which he's get, trying to get across. I don't think that this means that Jesus is promoting like, hey, <laughs> being a Christian is about being, going out and making profit and about, multiple, about investments and things like that. I don't think that that's the point. I think Jesus is trying to, using something that can, oftentimes these masters and people working for him were probably ungodly, but he could take that because he was talking to businessmen. Oftentimes his disciples, fishers of men, I mean, they understood business or the merchant world, at least to an extent. And so I think that I just want to pause and say that. But he's called lazy because he didn't even attempt to do the most simple thing, and that is give it to a banker and at least accrued a little interest. I mean, that could have been the easiest thing he could have done. It wouldn't have really been any risk. Of course, you could say that I didn't trust the banker. But in these days, I mean, who knows? They're probably more untrustworthy than, than our days. But it seems to be in the story that it would have been something very safe for him to do. And he didn't even attempt to do that. Instead, he buries the money, which guaranteed that no fruit would come from what he had been given. What he had was taken from him and given to the one who had ten talents, which was the first servant. Which, there's two different scriptures I want to kind of go to. First one's Matthew, the 13th chapter, verse 12. We see this over and over and over again, it seems like, in Jesus' parables. And I'm going to be the first to tell you that I'm not 110% sure exactly to complete certainty all the ways in which Jesus meant this. But he says in verse 12 of Matthew 13, For whoever has to him will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Matthew 21, verse 43, something very similar. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Now, I'm going to pause here. And to say that if you were to go and read a lot of commentaries over this parable, especially from individuals that have what's known as a reformed belief, or rather not a reformed belief, well, yes, a reformed belief, kind of a Calvinistic belief, and not trying to do anything to uh, talk about them in a negative light, mo many will interpret this as being an example of God rejecting Israel. That Israel was given the promises, that Israel was given the law, the oracles of God, and they have decided to bury it, to ignore it, to, to not recognize it. I don't quite agree with that uh, for many reasons. I think that, that there's much more here, and I think Jesus was specifically focused on a parable that could be applicable to all of us as Christians living in any era after he came okay uh, so just to kind of warn you many people think that these passages are talking about Israel now again we're getting in waters here that I'm not complete certain I don't have a complete certainty about that's not me saying that Jesus which he obviously does doesn't condemn the nation of Israel at least in so far as the individuals that were directly denying him but I think that what we can be sure of is that whether or not we have our complete interpretation of exactly like to the, you know, to the, uh, the last uh, meaning of this. In other words, like many of us would probably agree that we read scripture and there can be uh, not multiple truths from it, but it can be applied in many different ways. For today, my goal is not to get into the ins and outs of what Jesus meant as far as, like, is this applied to Israel? Is this basically an example of Israel being rejected and losing out on the promises? It's supposed to be a general application for me and you on a personal Christian, Christian manner. Okay? Because we can learn a lot from what took place in this parable. Now, I have three main points today. This is basically, we kind of went over this parable. Let's try to interpret what Jesus is saying, or rather some main points that we can gather from this parable. The first one is, God has entrusted us as his servants with some of his assets. And that is the truth. God's given us many different things that we could list. He's given us his spirit. He's given us a spiritual gift. 
He's given us a part of his kingdom. He's given us his name, being an heir according to the promises of Abraham through Christ. And we, as individuals, as servants that have been entrusted with some of these assets, talents. I don't use the word talents because I don't want us to get confused with thinking that it just means like our abilities. Because I think it's more than that. I think that we're actually limiting maybe the parable by thinking, getting confused with the word talent, the way it's used today, and the word talent was used in the first century. We are expected to be good stewards over them. We're expected to bear fruit from what we've been given. And I think all of us would agree with that, that God wants us to be fruitful. That he, Christianity is not a passive religion. Being a follower of Christ is not a passive endeavor. It's an active thing. It's something that is about growth and about moving forward. About moving towards the kingdom. And you don't move towards the kingdom by standing still. You move towards the kingdom in your life. Even if you lived in, in 1700 by developing into the nature and stature of Jesus Christ. That's why I don't think we can limit these assets to just the spiritual gifts we have been given. I think that this can be a multitude of things. A multitude of things. It can be the, 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 the gifts that God gives us. And I think we would all agree we've been given different gifts. And the whole point of those gifts is to build up the body. But I think that it can be something as simple as the time that we have been given on this earth. And maybe the context in which we have been given it in. Every context or every era of course is important. And you can make a difference. And you have a chance to be an influence on somebody or people or a group of people. How about the experiences? How about the opportunities? You think about you know, spiritual gifts and how I'm trying to make that more general. Just being in an opportunity to grow uh, the, the glory of God on this earth and the knowledge of the glory of God is an asset. It's something that we've been given a stewardship over. Matthew the 13th chapter verse 11 through 12 says something really, really, really incredible. If you think about the men and women that lived before us, before Jesus came to this earth as a human being, Jesus was asked this question, kind of about these parables. And let me tell you something. I'm kind of like these disciples sometimes. Why do you speak in parables, man? These are hard to understand sometimes. I mean, even us, having hindsight, having language tools, having the understanding of history, sometimes it's difficult for us to understand. And we have to tread lightly sometimes not to get it in over our head to misinterpret some of these parables. But verse 11 says, or verse 10 says, And his disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 11 says, He said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But blessed are the, your eyes, for they see... This is verse 16, I'm sorry. I went from... 10 to 12, and I'm just skipping to verse 16, because at the end of this, he says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For surely I said to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What a blessing. What an opportunity that we have to be able to see back through all the history of the work of God and history and space and time. And see that plan unfold to many individuals that had to just trust. And I tell you what, that, that really makes me have more respect for some of those individuals in the Old Testament. That, I mean, of course, we don't know quite to the extent that they knew. But we do know, kind of from this verse, that they didn't know at all. So when we see their faithfulness, that they were still faithful even though they didn't know the things that we know. They didn't know maybe exactly how everything was going to work out. We know Daniel, he was told, you rest right now. And at the end, the end days, you will await to your reward. And he trusted God that that was the truth. And he was faithful to God because he knew and he could be assured that that was something that he could rest on and trust. And the Almighty God, because he had seen his faithfulness, the our faithfulness starts with God's faithfulness. He had seen God's faithfulness bring him through. 
something that many of us probably have never experienced. And I hope we never do. A good question that we can all ask ourselves and really self-reflect on is, what have we been given and what have we done with what we have been given? Do we make excuses like the wicked servant? And I would assume, I think I have. I think I've made excuses. Well, I just don't have enough time. Well, I'm busy doing this or I'm busy doing that or I got this going on. And of course, we have to reflect on that. What does that mean? Does it mean that we actually like say, oh, I'm just too busy to grow in Christ? Am I just too busy to be using what God has given me for His glory? To promote His kingdom? And we understand that the kingdom of God is not here. But we are living as if the kingdom of God is here and it's imminently returning. And we are trying to live a life where we're governed already by the kingdom standards. And so we have to ask that question. I think that we have a great example of what happens when you don't use what God gives us. Because I think that when we look at that, you know, the him who has will be given more and him who doesn't have will be, even what he doesn't have will be taken. Or any, even what he does have will be taken. It's kind of a use it or lose it type deal. And I think that it's, we just have to be serious. And I don't think that, you know, God's looking at us and saying, well, you haven't done enough and I'm just taking your spirit away. I've taken my spirit away from you. I don't, I, mean, I don't think that's what Jesus is getting at. I don't think what, that's what the Bible teaches. But I think it's really clear that God long suffers us and he's patient with us. Man, is he patient. But it's not a license to be lazy or a license to be uh, irresponsible with the stewards that steward uh, with the talents with the the assets that God has given us let's go to first Samuel chapter 15 read a story real quick kind of we don't read all of it but I'll kind of talk a little bit about it we all know who Saul is Saul's the first king of the newly unified tribes of Israel and the, the kingdom of Israel all the Israelites, they wanted a king. They just had to have a king like all the other nations, right? And God gives them what the people think they want. It's nice, large, you know, uh, stout, structured man, handsome. He's the, in, in a lot of ways, he's the ideal king, at least from a human perspective. From a human perspective. And so he's made the ruler, the commander-in-chief over this nation of Israel. God's people that's now in this promised land and so if we read uh, first uh, Samuel the 15th chapter I'm just going to pick it up in verse 15 just to kind of give you a little bit of context here the story goes that Samuel comes to Saul and says that you need to go again basically the word of the Lord comes to Saul through Samuel God's prophet and he tells Saul you need to go and destroy the Amalekites and you are not to leave any breathing thing alive everything Women, children, animals, livestock, everything. And so in verse 7 it says, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them that everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Paul's, so let's, I'm going to move in. Okay, we see what's taking place. He's been commanded to do away with all the Amalekites. No living or breathing thing whatsoever. And so Saul's explanation when Samuel comes, because Samuel hears about this and he's very disheartened. He knows that Saul has went against the commandment of God. He's allowed the best of the flocks. He's allowed the fatlings, the oxen, the best of the sheep, the lambs, all that was good to stay alive, which was completely against the command that he was given via Samuel. In verse 13, then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Really? Have you performed the commandment of the Lord? Verse 14, but Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And so we see, I mean, you read this story and you're thinking, what's going on here? 
But you see that Saul, it's hard to, it's hard to, in some ways you kind of read Saul's life and you think, well, maybe he really, maybe he was that spiritually blind that he really thought he did a good thing. Because in verse uh, uh, just reread verse 15. And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And so he's kind of given an excuse. He's kind of given an excuse. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared them. Not me. Not the commander-in-chief. I'll kind of excuse myself from this situation real quick. That seems to be what Saul's doing. This is kind of his M.O. here. Notice not only how Saul made an excuse, but he blamed the people here in verse 20. We skip down to verse 20. It says, And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. King of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people, people, they took the plunder, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So he says that it's the people who did it. But hey, they did it for the right thing, right? They're sacrificing to the Lord. Again, Saul blames the people. But eventually, when we read in verse 24, he will admit that he did this because he was fearful of the people. Or that's what he says. Verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So he finally admits. He finally repents. I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Because I fear the people and obeyed their voice. And so you're kind of left thinking, well, which is it? Saul, is it really that you feared the people? Which isn't good. Because it's demonstrating that you fear the people and what they expect. And you know, to make them happy over the word of God and keeping the commandment of God? Or did you really do it because you kind of wanted to get some personal gain from it as well? You know, even if it was the first one, you're kind of trying to do it for some personal gain. You're trying to keep good standing capital, right? And, and, and a good approval rating with the people. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin. This is verse 25. Now, please Please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. And so just to kind of explain, we'll, we'll just go ahead and, and read the rest and then we'll talk about that. Read verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Saul was given a great asset, a great talent. And that was to be the king over Israel. And now it's being taken from him. Because he squandered it. Verse 27. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people. And before Israel, and return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Now we have many things at play here, some aspects of the story. Number one, Saul admits that he's fearful of the people. He's fearful over, he, that he's fearful of the people over the commandment of God. He wanted to be the popular king, the king that the people wanted, not the king that the people needed. That place the word of God over all else. Including the personal benefits of the people. Approval ratings. Of course that's our terminology today. Just to try to understand it. But it seems that Saul was more concerned. With trying to get the approval of the people. The people are staying around. They defeat the Amalekites. And all the people are probably thinking. We get to take the best right? And he's thinking oh, I don't want to disappoint them. I don't want them to not like me. I want to be a popular king. Another thing he does is that even though he realizes that he sins, or at least he admits it, and he kind of seems to be repenting, there's another little interesting part that even though in the midst of repenting, he still goes back to that focus of approval of the people. Because he says, Saul, or Samuel, please, 
I'm sorry. I, I, I sinned against God. I shouldn't have done that. I should have killed everything. But still come back with me and do it in front of the elders and all of Israel so they'll know that, hey, I'm still the guy because it's about me. Really, at the end of the day, when we read this story, we see that Samuel, yeah, he repents. Yeah, he says he's sorry. Yeah, he admits that this was wrong. But we see that he's still focused on himself by trying to get Samuel to do what he wanted him to do so he would still not let anyone know that anything was wrong. Come with me. Come with me. I have sinned. Yet honor me now, be pleased, before the elders of my people and before Israel. So this is just an example of someone in our Bible. We can go to many that had been given a great asset of being the first king over all of Israel and of being taken from them. My second main point, none of us know the day or the hour of Christ's return, but we must heed the time that we have. We know in the parable, we don't know when this master is going to return and settle accounts. Not wanting to put Barnabas on the spot, but last week in the letter that was read by Steve, one of the things that he was thanking us, of course, because of what happened with him and having to be in the hospital, and we were all concerned. And he wrote a letter just appreciating our prayers and, and our love and the things that, that, that he received while he was in the hospital and the concern. But one of the things that he said was, be ready to enter the kingdom at any time. Well, that's true, isn't it? Be ready to enter the kingdom at any time. It's interesting because, you know, we, we, we kind of, in some ways, we talk about this journey as we're, you know, we're armored Christian soldiers. We've had messages about how we're, you know, we have the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, okay, the sword of the Spirit, all this armor. And a lot of that's to do with our journey here on this life as Christians and fighting the spiritual battles that we have to fight. But we also have to be that vigilant soldier that's ready, not just for a spiritual battle, but that's ready when that kingdom of God might come. And what I'm talking about, of course, is that you never know when your last breath will be. Because right then, that's when you need to be ready to take hold of the kingdom. Because the next thing that you're going to see is Christ. And him coming and meeting him in the air to meet everyone else that's on this earth at the voice of that trumpet to take back this earth and to establish that kingdom that we talk about year in, year out on this earth. Also, as mentioned, the master left on his journey and his return was uncertain, but the servants had to heed the time that they were given. Kind of going back to what I'm talking about. Knowing what we do know and what happens in life, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We're not guaranteed three hours from now. We know that life can happen. The first two servants, they took advantage of their time and immediately went to work. They were examples of living in a state of urgency for their master. Let's go to Revelation, the second chapter. And reading this and looking at this this morning, I went to my Bible, and I have this uh, little chart. And we've all are familiar with the seven churches of Revelation. And the very beginning of Revelation, we see that there's these warnings giving to these seven churches. And man, I can tell you this, just like I mentioned earlier, we're not going to get into the ins and outs of the parable and who it applies to as far as historically and prophetically. We're not going to get into the ins and outs of this because we'll be here for three years. Okay? Because it is very, very dense in theology, meaningful, impactful. But there's something really simple that I think we all can kind of understand and get, to, get from it. And that is when we read about this story, the, these churches that are addressed... And these churches are addressed with what they are, they're commended, what, what they're doing right. They're commended for what they're doing right. But they're criticized for what they're lacking, what they're not doing. And five of them experience criticism. Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, they were criticized. They were commended that they had love for Christ, but they were no longer fervent. They were told that they had lost their first love. Pergamos. Chapter 2, verse 12 through 17, tolerated immorality, idolatry, and heresies. Thyatira, 
verses 18 to 19, they tolerated cult, the cult of idolatry and immorality. And I'm kind of getting the, the wording, just to make it short and simple, from this chart that I have here in my Nelson Study Bible. So just want to kind of let you know that. Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, they were called a dead church. A dead church. Is there anything such as a dead church? Christianity and being a Christian is the opposite of dead. It is it's life. That's what we've become. I mean, we're not talking about physical life. We're talking about spiritual life. That is a stark warning to this church here in Sardis. And then, of course, Laodicea indifference. Lukewarm. Could care less. Now, we can get into that, and people have... People have just beat this to death. People have gone and said that this represents different eras of history and churches and things like that. And Thankfully, we have the Philadelphia Church of God in Edmond, Oklahoma. But uh, Some people call themselves the Philadelphia Church of God, uh, literally. I mean, not the name. Of course, we do have a church of God called the Philadelphia Church of God. But some people actually say that not only is this eras in church history, we are the era of Philadelphia and we're the ones ushering in. We're the church with no criticisms. God is completely happy with us. I think that's a very dangerous state to be in and thinking to have. Although we can get into this very you know, prophetically, and theologically, I think it can be very personal. Very, very personal. Last week, you know that language of Ephesus, man, it just really gets me when I, when I, when I read it. Because I know, I mean, I, obviously we can get into how we might have problems. Not as a church. I think that you can kind of look at this as an individual. Because we can individually have these problems. Okay, we collect, you know, Christianity is a corporate, collective endeavor. But it's also a personal endeavor, an individual endeavor. Okay, God is, we're working out our own salvation between us and God. But the purpose is to be a part of a collective corporate body. Christ's body. And so as last week, the, the baptism, I mean, Kelly Cole was such a wonderful event. And if you're anything like me, every time you see a baptism, you hark back to when you were baptized. And why I think this is related is because, you know, you, you think about that first time you were baptized, you kind of think about the servants that were fervent in what they were given. And when you were first baptized, that was the era that you first became fervent for the things of God. And sometimes time goes by and maybe you don't quite feel like that like you did. Or it goes in waves. And let's just be real. It does. It goes in waves. Okay? And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the baptism. I was thinking about what Mr. Matthew Steele said last week about the old man and how it was Buried in that watery grave, even and, 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 and talking about all the way from the very beginning. And sometimes the old man tries to come up and tries to drag us back to Egypt, even when we're not even completely aware of it, because we're kind of got our head in the sand or we're not careful. But this morning, while I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the idea of the first love. Man, I, we all understand what that means. It is a love. You talk about being married, and maybe you haven't been married, and that's okay. Maybe you have never been in love, that's okay. But this right here is incomparable. The love that you first get when, you, when God starts working with you and that spirit starts working with you and starts calling you. And so when I did that this morning, I decided that I would uh, kind of brought something up here to kind of show you an old friend. I say that because I, I, I want to say that Ron Dart gave a message or a radio program where he was talking about an old Bible and he called it an old friend. In a lot of ways... It is. It's like an old friend, right? You know, you start out. And this Bible right here, uh, this was my first Bible. I got this in the teen class. It's, as you can see, it's handled with care. It's falling apart. Uh, I keep it. And thank you, Matthew and uh, Renee, for getting us this Bible, but for also teaching us the proper way of taking care of a Bible. This right here is the, the, the box the Bible came in. And one of the things we did when we first got it was we took the box, we cut out a slit, sorry, and we tape it all around, and you have a nice little, uh, nice little Bible cover. But the reason I brought this out was just because I want us all to think back at that time. You, know, you were first baptized. That urgency that you had, that zeal. Maybe you still have it like you did, and it, sometimes it does go in waves. But I just kind of got this out. As you can see, I've marked it up. and I know it might sound kind of weird. Uh, 
maybe you don't have this experience, but I'm sure many of you do. That um, you know, this was many hours spent in this Bible. Since I use three or four Bibles that are physical, and I'll be honest with you, I've kind of become somewhat of a technological person. I, I've kind of you know bit the bullet on that, but nothing can compare to this this Bible right here for me because it to me on a personal note. This is what makes me remember my first love and be reminded of because of that era uh, that, that is uh, life-changing, uh, eternal changing for me. And uh, every one of us have that, that story to tell for ourselves, and you have your own personal story. And so as I bring that out, I just want us to understand that we never know the day or the hour when the kingdom will come. And to think about some of those warnings that were given to the churches of Revelation. What are we doing? What are we doing with what we have been given? My last main point is this: that servant, those servants that were given talents, they weren't just completely servants that just did everything for the master and they got nothing out of it. But in the context and how it worked, these servants, when they would multiply and they would turn a profit for their master, they would get to share in some of those profit. Now, again, this isn't about money. It's not about getting wealthy. It's a greater point than that. It's about making a spiritual profit. It's about spiritually investing in what God has given us. And God, in our last main point, God has chosen us to be co-workers with him. In, in a way, taking the master's money, taking the master's talent, turning a profit. That master was in business, was in a partnership with that servant. And that servant got to enjoy in the profits at the masters, at the, of the master's assets. 1 Corinthians, the third chapter, verse 5 through 9. This is a, give you context again. Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church the issue of people saying, well, I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul. This is my baptism. This is the person I follow. You know, it's the badge of honor, Christianity. It's like, well, you were baptized by Paul, but I was baptized by Apollos. Okay, and we've had that in our own history. Okay. Uh, we, we have, unfortunately. Not just our history, but Christianity in general. They says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers through which you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? As the Lord gave to each one. It's the same thing we kind of read in the parable. He gave everyone according to their ability, or according to what he believed that they could handle, what he foreordained and believed that he wanted them to have. He doesn't give everybody everything. He doesn't give everybody the same but he gives according to what he desires to give each person. Verse 6, I planted Apollos water. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the increase. And that's something we have to understand. That it's not about us making a profit so we can say, look what we did, but it's to further the glory of God. And in doing so, you're not just investing in yourself. You're investing in the kingdom of God. It shows not only your love for God, because whenever you're given the talents that God has given us, the assets, it's for the growth of the kingdom, for the growth of God's glory, which means it's love of people and brethren, because ultimately that's what it's going to do. The growth of the kingdom means that you are having more people come into this knowledge, amazing knowledge and salvation history and salvation plan that God has for everyone. And God desires for everyone. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters. But God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. Fellow workers. We get to enjoy into the labors of God. We get to be co labors with God and make no mistake it's not us that's doing it he's the one that's providing the water he gives us the tools he says go out there and, and, and plant go out there and sow I will water we don't determine where the water get, uh, goes we don't determine we don't say well that's not going to be very profitable if I talk to these people it's not going to work if I tell them about Christ if I tell them about God's plan they're just going to ignore me that's not for us to decide. 
Although he wants us to invest his assets and be fruitful with them, that's what he wants them to do. Ultimately, when he does that, he's investing in us. This is one of the growth, this is one of the ways in which God grows us. That we develop into a relationship with him. The first thing that Jesus says, it says, basically, I caught you, Peter, John, James, Andrew. You're fishermen. I'm going to turn you into fishers of men. Immediately. And that's what we're called to do. And so the question we have to ask ourselves, are we faithful? Are we faithful servants? Do we want to be like the first two servants or like the last servants? Do we want to go around and make excuses for why, you know, we can't profit or we, I don't want to say profit, we can't bear fruit from what we've been given? No matter what, I think that this is some stuff that we can think about as we think about the baptism last week. We think about what God has given us as individuals. What has God gave us and what are we doing with it? When that kingdom comes for me and you, what is Christ going to say? Are we going to hear those words, well done, good and faithful one? 